It's the Literary Lectures Podcast, Kings of Horror episodes, reading and digesting books from the masters of modern horror, and viewing the films. Your co-hosts tonight are Vicky Ray, Leandro Ghazi, Craig Johnson, David Grant, and Keith Shago, giving you a word-by-word, scene-by-scene, and everything in between, and everything in between, and everything in between, and everything in between. Welcome to Let Your License Podcast, and it's our books to screen, or our Kings of Horror episode. We'll be covering Cabal by Clive Barker and Nightbreed. And today we have with us, we have Leandro Gazi. Hello, Leandro. Hi, how are you too? I'm just doing super gravy, and it's a rainy Saturday evening here. So yeah, drip, drip, drip. And then we have Craig Johnson with us. Hello, Craig. Hi, Keith. Hi, Leandro. Hi. So, before we get started, let's find out what we've been up to since last time we spoke to each of you. Starting with you, Craig, what have you been up to since last time we spoke to you? Um, since last time, I've been um, working on a new um, t-shirt and hoodie design based on the uh, Nintendo Mario Mushrooms and been working on some merchandise and I'm, I'm going to get it out very soon it'll be in the newsletter or there'll be links in the newsletter i think and um just watch this space i'm i'm working on some stuff but yeah it's it's, uh it's nice to see like some artwork that i've made like actually on a product it's just weird to see it like that but it looks cool so um that'll be one of my things and um yeah and also one of the other um pieces is is a called the witch is dead which is a modern take of the wizard of oz where the the house has fallen on the witch and you see the legs sticking out and i've done it in it said in north finchley uh, um my uncle's old house where he's where his old garage was and that's also going to be on water bottles and some pillows and things like that cushions stuff like that it's very minimal very very gothic and uh it kind of fits the feel for uh for this or even the the two four one eighties if you're into that type of thing then it's probably right up your street so yeah most of my stuff is like a lot of my inspiration from my artwork and photography comes from my hometown of East Finchley in North London and that's where I get my ideas when I'm out taking pictures and not lit uh lurking around graveyards. As <laughs> 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 <Yes>, you do <laughs> And you can check. What are you up to? Uh, well, having like um, 
settled down the new job. Um, yesterday I went to um, Arnold uh, Schwarzenegger exposition in Birmingham. And yeah, pretty much just that reading. Um, that's all. And you? Uh, well, myself, um, I find a free picture deal with Prometheus Films. Um, so editing the scripts and stuff for that for television and film. Um, Bat for Blood comes out next week. So that comes out on the 12th of October. So in the meantime, um, so from the 15th, 16th, and 17th on Xbox and PlayStation, you can meet the cast and crew and everyone who worked on Back to Blood and play in online games with them. And I'll be part of that. If you want to play with myself, my um, gamer tag for um, Xbox is Wolf, the only 666. And I'll be on there with other people who are playing Back for Dead, um, Back for Blood, excuse me, to help celebrate the opening of the and the release of the game. And outside of that, been watching some stuff on Netflix, but nothing really comes to mind. So I think I've been doing a lot of time filling at the moment without actually watching anything fulfilling. Well, that brings us to Cabal by Clive Barker. Cabal is a 1988 horror novel by the British author Clive Barker. It was originally published in the United States as part of a collection compromising a novel and several short stories from Barker's sixth and final volume of The Books of Blood. The book, of course, was adapted into a film, Nightbreed, in 1990. It was written and directed by Clive Barker himself, starring Craig Schaeffer and David Cronenberg. A television adaption is in development at the Sci-Fi Channel, directed by Michael Daugherty and written by Josh Stahlberg. And these are the same people who will bring in you Chucky, the TV series, out the 12th of October. So all we'll do is cut to the synopsis and be right back to discuss Cabal by Clyde Barker. Ball by Clive Barker. The synopsis. Boone, a young man suffering from an unspecified mental disorder, is told by his trusted psychiatrist, Decker, that he is responsible for brutal serial murders in Calgary. Boone, however, has no recollection of committing these murders. After a suicide attempt, Boone begins searching for Midian, a semi-mythical city that he sees in his dreams that supposedly offers sanctuary to monsters and miscreets collectively known as the Nightbreed. After a suicide attempt, Boone is taken to a clinic and told by a fellow patient named Narcisse that he knows where Midian is, as he is seeking entry into the city himself. Thinking this is a nightbreed test of Narcisse's resolve, Narcissi reveals Midian's location to Boone and manically savages his own face with a razor. Horrified, Boone escapes the clinic. 
Following Narcissus' directions, Boone locates Midian, only discovered that the city lies beneath a cemetery. At the cemetery, two of the Nightbreed reveal themselves and attack Boone. One of the assailants bites into Boone's neck, but he narrowly manages to escape. Decker appears and reveals to Boone that Decker himself had committed the serial murders and framed Boone as the scapegoat. Boone is then shot dead by the local policeman who had been pursuing him alongside Decker. Boone's body is placed in a morgue, but is laterly mysteriously disappears. Boone's lover Lori is unable to cope with what she's been told about Boone, so she decides to travel to Midian for answers. Along the way, she makes friends with Cheryl, who decides to accompany her, though Cheryl stays in town and does not enter the cemetery. Lori encounters a small, frail creature writhing in pain at the cemetery. One of the Nightbreed, Rachel, begs Lori to bring the creature to her. When she does so, the creature transforms into a human child, Rachel's daughter, Babette. As thanks, Rachel informs Lori that she knows Lori has come for Boone, but Rachel is silenced by the Nightbreed leader, Lylesburg. Before she can reveal any more information, Lori is refused entrance into the city. Meanwhile, Decker, having gained Cheryl's trust by seducing her beforehand, kills Cheryl and reveals his identity to Lori. Lori narrowly escapes Decker's attacks and returns to Midian, where revived Boone saves her with his new Nightbreed power against Lylesburg's wishes. As punishment, by the will of Midian's creator, Baphomet, Lylesburg commands the couple to leave Midian. Reunited, Boone and Lori return to the hotel that Lori was staying at, only to discover that Decker has already been there and has massacred many people inside. The police arrive, and though Lori is able to flee, Boo degenerates into an animal state at the sight of Decker's carnage, eating some of the dead bodies before getting arrested. Decker convinces the police chief, the bigoted radical Eggerman, to go to Midian and capture or kill everyone living there. Eggerman sends a small squad of officers to scout Midian in order to confirm the fact that there are people there. Eggerman's men capture and kill Anaka, one of the Nightbreed, an event witnessed by Babette, who telepathically transmits the information to Lori. Lori meets up with Narcissus, and together they help Boone escape from jail. Elsewhere, Eggerman and Decker organize a lynch mob made up of policemen and volunteers to attack Midian. Eggerman takes a priest called Ashbury along. Boone, Nori, and Narcissus find that Eggerman's men have overrun Midian and that many of the Nightbreed have been killed. Forcing them out from the underground by setting the city aflame, Decker manages to kill Narcissus during the battle. But Boone later has a final confrontation with Decker and kills him. Eggers' men are chased off by the Nightbreed, but Midian is completely destroyed, and many Nightbreed have been killed. Eggerman and Ashbury decide to form a team in order to eradicate the Nightbreed. Baphomet rebaptizes Boone as Cabal and grants him new power, tasking him with finding a new home for the Nightbreed, a task he accepts. And as the synopsis for Cabal by Fly Barker. Welcome back to Literal License Podcast. We're discussing Cabal by Clive Barker. And starting with you, Craig, what are your thoughts of Cabal? Um, the book was probably just the right size for me to to read in this in the space that I had, sort of thing. Uh, it was a good good size. I think it the it was a little gem, really, because it was like a subterranean underworld of fantasy and um 
little spoils and things that I think the book really demonstrated really well um, compared to the film, but the film was pretty excellent as well. Um, And I think it was nice to learn about the the, the characters such as Pelequin. I found him quite intriguing. Um, Even the names were just really quite beautiful and exotic and, um, and I've got an excerpt actually that I'm going to read, um, which is um, her gaze went with her into a room with walls of frozen earth and a floor the same. The latter split from corner to corner and a, and a fissure opened in it from which a flame column rose four or five times the size of a man. There was a cold of it rather than heat and no reassuring flicker in its heart. Instead, its innards churned upon themselves, turning over and over some fright of stuff, which she failed to recognise at first, but her appalled stare rapidly interpreted. There was a body in the fire, hacked limb from limb, human enough that she recognised it as flesh, but no more than that. Baphomet's doing, presumably, some torment visited on a transgressor. Boone said the baptizer's name even now, and she readied herself for sight of its face. She had it too, but from inside the flame as the creature there, not dead but alive, not Midian's subject, but its creator, rolled its head in the turmoil of flame and looked her way. This was Baphomet. And that was Clive Barker's Cabal. Now, um, in the movie, obviously, Baphomet was slightly different, but still kind of cool uh, in a way. I, I, I would have preferred more of, a, of an impetus of format in the movie but we can talk about that after um but yeah it was a really cool book and i think it i think for its time as well i mean it was pretty nothing had really been done before based on the underworld and um to have that amount of characters as well in one setting it like one scene um and um i think maybe as an animation it might have been good um or it could definitely do with a remake i think or a tv series even because you could learn so much from the characters and then you could have origin stories and all sorts i mean they've opened up a whole can of worms now keith <laughs> well a tv series is in development by the sci-fi channel so we'll see how that see if that comes to fruition what about yourself leandro what are your thoughts of cabal um I really enjoyed um at the beginning it was a bit confusing to understand the first two three chapters um it was not clear for me you know if like he was talking the dog was talking with a patient you know but it was the conversation were a bit not like straightforward a bit complicated then then as as a carry on reading was uh, i i got it, it was um easy to understand um as Craig said I really enjoyed it because it's a short book and they have divided in different like um, chapters. So it's, and the chapters are not big, so it's like easy to you know read it, stop and then carry on whenever you can. I really like the story, and one of the things that I really like about the, this podcast is like the stories that we have been we have been reading. They are set in different places in the world, and for example, this one was like more like kind of like north of. Um, of North America and Canada because they were talking about some uh, towns near there. Calgary. Um, 
Calgary, uh-huh. where the Winter Olympics took place about 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, well, I have been living in USA, um, in North Dakota. So what, it was really easy to me when they were describing the place to imagine, you know, those places that maybe, I don't know, like, um, are not a lot of, like, uh, trees. It's, like, more, like, deserted areas. I really enjoy the way he, like, tell you the story of you know the when the characters appears and, and how everything's going on. Um yeah, I, re- I really enjoy it. Yeah. Um interesting, you know, also the the way he tells, you know, the underworld and um yes, I di- I think it's like a kind of like different view. I mean then then you then did realizing that I don't know like well at least to me, you know, it's like there were kind of monster but they were not evil 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 you know they're imagining they were attacking someone is because they were having to want to eat kind of like that right but they were not coming to destroy anything they were staying in that place where they were like being there so yeah i really enjoyed the story i mean a cabal is kind of a odd little story because you think that you're on a mission to boom but I found that it's quite interesting that Boone is like the prologue. And now basically it's the story of Lori, really. Because basically yeah. after the prologue and after he, you know, next thing you know, now we're on Lori's quest for the rest of the, for the, rest of the um, books sort of thing. And I thought that was quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it is quite, I mean, you know, Clyde Barker is a um, gay author. I guess at this time he wasn't out. But I guess it would have been too hard to figure it out because he spent a lot of time talking about Boone's beautiful penis. So you're kind of like, okay, <laughs> it's like, this is kind of weird from a male <laughs> author. This is something you kind of find like in a bio female author sort of thing. But like, okay. But, um, but I thought it was quite interesting. And I thought, um, though I, th- I have to sit there and say that it's, there, there is a, if you've read any other Clyde Barker um, stuff, this is probably the easiest one to probably get into. Um, you know, the Great and Secret Show, or whether it's Hellbound Heart, or whether it's um, Weave World, and other stuff that he's come out with. Everything has a, um, a pseudo-sexualness to it. And this one, I have, I have to sit and say that there, there, there was some... You know, sex. You know, some sex in it, but it was quite toned down. It wasn't the whole pseudo-sexual S and M kind of, you know, brutality that he tends to put into his work. So I thought that Cabal was is probably if you're not a Clyde, if you never read Clyde Barker, I think Cabal is probably a good place to start, sort of thing. And then you kind of think you can start weaving your world, weaving yourself into his darker stuff from this one here. But I think this is a good starting point. And compared to say something like the Hellraiser series, this was almost a bit quite romantic for Clive Barker because at one point you're reading away and then you think, hold on, this could be Beauty and the Beast because he's, he's, a, he's been bitten by Pelequin. He's, gonna be, he's becoming a shapeshifter. He, he's going to become more demonic, but he doesn't want her to see him like this and he's trying to hide away. And, um, yeah, I quite like that. And, and it was also... They like to question death, and it, it, it was quite an interesting topic to suggest to say, um, you know, we're in, living in this sanctuary for dead people, and we are we are or shapeshifters that embrace 
death and this is how we live um, and the sunlight will can burn our skin and things like that and um that one of the other quotes that um was um one one that says of all the rash and midnight promises made in the name of love none who knew now knew was more certain to be broken than our than our I'll never leave you. What? And then some, and then another line was dead. Isn't bad. Narcisse said it isn't even that different. So it's quite interesting. And it's quite, and back then it would have been quite taboo. I mean, what year was this again? It was um, in the eighties, wasn't it? So, or nineties. So that would have been quite revolutionary really for um, writing and cinema. So it's pretty cool. (laughs) I found another thing with um, Clive Barker. I mean, at this time, he wrote this in England. He was still in England at the time. Um, Clive Barker's from Liverpool. Um, and by this time, he was living in Muswell Hill when he wrote Cabal. So what's quite interesting is, is that reading it, it comes across as a very American, North American novel, um, which has that kind of feel to it. Because there, there's a difference between reading an English author and an American author in the way that things are written. And I just going to say this, that this had a real American feel to it as far as reading it. It's quite, not a lot of flowery writing going on. It's quite straightforward, kind of like put you there. And I thought that he captured Canada very, very well as far as the destitute, the, you know, the long, you know, long country, des- you know, desolate highways and to get to where you're going. And this, that is Canada. You know, once you pass Toronto, that's pretty much it. That your civilization's pretty destitute, you know, Canada sort of thing. And Alberta, where this takes place, is even more destitute sort of thing. It's a bit like going to Wisconsin or Montana or somewhere like that. And I thought that he captured that very, very good. And there was also um, a coldness to it, I have to admit. But you're reading it, and it just feels like the whole place that they're at is cold. It doesn't feel very warm where they are sort of thing. Yeah. And I thought he captured that very well. Now, with Midian, I thought it was quite interesting that Midian is like a, a sanctuary. But I guess with like sanctuary, though, you know, basically like he claimed sanctuary in the church, like when we covered Hunchback of Notre Dame, basically what that means is that you stay inside that church. So you're kind of like a prisoner within that, within your own sanctuary. So you may be free, but you're free, you're a free prisoner. And I thought that that's pretty much what Midian was. I mean, these, here are these um, people, um, Myth, mythical creatures or beasts or people and basically what they have is yeah people are leaving them alone and they're safe but at the same time they are prisoners in their own in their own safety and then they have to they have to be forced to fight to get their freedom and how they don't want you know some of them don't want to fight for their freedom they just you know they're you become quite submissive in the safety net that you um harvest yourself in well, what happened, yeah, it's like, yeah, I I agree with what you say. They were like, they were free, but they were like, yeah, in, in that place, they were like, they were not leaving that place. But if you, if you see, there were like all, a lot of people in the book, the, when um, Laurie was walking in the graveyard, she could see there were um, tombs from different places, from different uh, languages. So it's like, in my, I, I don't know, I, at that point I thought, okay, it was like all kind of um, monsters, I don't know how to call them, coming from different parts from the world to that place to stay there. So if you, if you see it like that, probably it's not like a prison, it's like a destination of where to go if you are like one of them. 
Yeah, I guess it's a bit like final destination. Yeah, well, it'd be like I guess it'd be a simple fact that you're let's say that you're born in the town that you're born into, and you can't leave that town ever to live yeah. to live amongst the world, sort of thing, and experience the world. And it's like me, essentially. <laughs> you can never be essentially ever. I can never so, escape. I mean, I mean, God forbid. I mean, I mean, I grew up in a very, very small farm town of 1,800 people. My graduating class had 30 people in it, and that covered five towns. So, and the nearest city is a four-hour drive. So, I mean, if that was rules for me, I probably would have been. I would probably would have shot myself in the face with a shotgun by now, sort of thing, because it's just you know. You know, because you kind of have to like get out and you know and be able to move, but figure that suppose you can't. And I guess, um, and you know, but then again, you do see that with people who like in small towns, sort of thing is that from generation to generation, generation, the family stays there, sort of thing, because there is a safety net there, there is a safetyness to it, but at the same time, there is you have to worry about things like your brain doesn't fully, maybe not fully envelop the outside world and doesn't change with the times and doesn't become more free thinking. And, and you kind of, and you find yourself getting quite settled down with laws and, um, and that's what you find with the creatures, the Meridian sort of thing that, you know, they're not, um, they, they have all these laws and stuff that they can and cannot do. And they seem to, what's I felt in Kabbalah, it seemed like they were, there are organic laws that kind of like, okay, well, this happened once, so therefore this can't happen again. This happened once, so this can't happen again because we need to keep the safety of keep the safety of everyone here. Though, Do you think, in a way, the Midian represented maybe in terms of Clive Barker's personal life? Do you think that the Midian represented, you know, um, his desires and things he was doing, and and then this being exposed to the police? And the human nature side of things and the sunlight could could represent him um, having to reveal himself and to um, come out of the closet, so to speak. You probably could put it into that way, because at the end, what happens is, is that once you come out of that closet sort of thing, then you need to start finding a new home and rebuilding your family sometimes. And that's what um, Medin has to do. I have to sit there and say that out of all the um, characters, I found Boone kind of uh, irritating. Why? I think it's because, first of all, it's like what we have is this person who seems to be have a lot of a, a lot of conflict, whether it's emotional conflict or personality conflicts. And I mean, I guess you know, I guess was he bipolar? I guess because they don't really say what his mental illness is. He's got well, he's seeing a psychiatrist that we know. But then it's kind of like, but he seems quite weak-minded to be able to be fed that, you know, he's going to see a psychiatrist for whatever reasons. We're not quite sure. He's not able to commit to Lori. Lori doesn't really know. I mean, that's, you know, I like I like Lori character a lot, but you never quite understood what exactly did she see in Boone because it's, Boone did not seem like the ideal boyfriend at any time, even before, you know, he goes on the run or anything like this. You know, he never knew where he where she stood with him, sort of thing, and no one knew it. You know, he was always conflicted. He's a man with a a curse or whatever is going on with him. And then he goes to a psychiatrist, who's able to feed him to make him think that he's a serial killer. When 
you know, and then he tries to top himself without facing the music or trying to figure out how this is going to go. And then he kind of runs the Midian. And then he puts everyone at risk at Midian for his own personal gain. I know he's to save Lori and whatever like that. And then, and then, then Lori has to sit there and give him sex to bring him back to himself. So he goes back to Midian and, uh, you know, help fix the fault that he caused. And I found, you know, for me, I, I, Boone for me was, he was annoying a lot of times. You're like, <laughs> we don't really get in the Boone's head either, though, because as I said before, we're kind of like, we're like an outsider at the beginning with Boone up until, you know, the point where he tries to commit suicide and then he runs off to Midian and then he dies. And this is all done like a, the prologue sort of thing, but we don't really get inside his head anyway. We're kind of like looking at it from a spectator's point of view. And then we go to Lori's story. Now we're inside Lori's head all the time, all the way through to the very end. So that it might be because of that. But I would sit there and say that if I was Lori and Boone was my boyfriend, I'd be like, well, he's dead. I'm going to move on. <laughs> never really well, I think it's like Boone was having like problems, right? Like not accepting that he was, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, listen to those voices and all that at the beginning. And then you have... The perfect um, psychiatrist that is like mental, you know, that's killing people and have the perfect person to blame because that person can, I don't know, have, I think it's called lapsus, you know, when you lost a part of your mind and you don't remember what you have done or something like that. So he was the perfect plan. So if he was discovered, he could say, no, if this man, and actually he did it, you know, and in a moment, he was saying, "Well, look, I have everything recorded here that you have admitted that you have killed them, but he has he had he didn't do it." But then I started to think, "Well, maybe he did few of them because he was turning into, in a way, into what he was going to be." I don't know. I thought about that, but I thought, well, maybe it's just an idea. Not just well, I guess I mean he's you know he's fed he's fed into believing. Now I found Decker a very interesting character. <clears throat> I quite like that. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if I would go him to him as a patient. I mean, he does have a mask that speaks to him. You know, I mean, I have a mask. He reminded me of the scarecrow from Batman. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yes, that reminds me. Yeah, you're right. With the zipper mouth and stuff like this. And <laughs> though I have to sit there and say that his master plan is is kind of flawed to a certain extent, I guess. Because I guess, you know, because his, his plan is, okay, Boone, Boone will take the rap for this. But then after Boone takes the rap for this, then his plan was to leave Vancouver and start somewhere else and do the killings all over again. And you're thinking, well, you better change your MO because basically it's like all these, because he, he, he did have a way of, the killings that he did all have the same, the same way of killing, didn't they? And basically, it's like, you know, he had his MO or um, murders up or envy sort of thing. And basically, you know, he go through and he wipe out a family sort of thing. And then basically, you know, the way he cut and the way he sliced and mm-hmm. the way that he killed him, he killed everyone in the same fashion. So, and I thought to myself, it was like, well, you know, if you're going to move to a different country, and I say that, and this was his plan, his plan was Boone takes the fall. I'll move on, change my name, and basically start a new practice, and I'll start killing all over again. You're thinking, well, Boone's not going to stay in prison very much longer if you're, if you're, you know, because, I mean, he wasn't, like, just killing one or two people. I mean, he was a, you know, serial killer. He was killing quite a few people, wasn't he? Families and children and so on yeah. and so forth. So I thought, you know, for, for Master Planets, 
it's, it's kind of a failed master plan, really. <laughs> this is what you're doing, sort of thing, because. But I mean, this is before social media and mass, you know, mass communication and everything that we have nowadays. Where I think, you know, I don't think Decker, to be honest, I don't think Decker could survive in 2021 now with DNA and CCTV and being watched all the time. And, yeah. You know, but I guess you know, back at the time this was written, nineteen was it nineteen eighty six? Was it nineteen eighty eight when this was written? And, you know, it was a different world back then, I suppose. Now, but, yeah, so I quite like, you know, I did like Decker, but I also like what Clyde Barker was also saying, that basically that if you look a certain type, if you look clean, brushed up, suit, look professional, you can get away with pretty much anything. But obviously the people who are wearing suits, and if you look at the people wearing suits, the minister wears a suit, um, you know, minister garb, basically a uniform, I guess more of a uniform. You got Decker in his lawyer uniform. You got the police in their uniform. And yeah. it's almost yeah. like they're the one, and they end up being, the people in uniform are not the ones to be trusted. Which is quite You know, you remi re remind me, there is a movie um, called Catch Me If You Can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the, the, same thing, the same thing. That, yeah. And. Um, Uh, what was the name of this man? The one from the um, last movie, the previous book. Oh, Dead Zone. David Cronenberg. No, oh, what was the name? Hold on. The death of Leonardo DiCaprio. Well, did, he said to um, Leonardo DiCaprio, look, yes, yes. He said, always wear a uni, uh, like a suit and tie because if you are like, doing something like illegal, that he was, he was doing at the airport, They will never stop someone with a suit and tie and those time of the day, that, that, that time, right? It will maybe it will stop someone that looks more casual and suspicious rather than a professional, you know? So he was all the time dressing really, really smart and getting all, I don't know, like drinks or things for free. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, if you look at, like, if you want a shoplift, if you go in looking like a hobo, chances are you're not going to get away with it. But if you go in looking like, a successful business person, they're going to be like, oh, they're not going to be shoplifting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of thing. And I thought that was quite interesting because you do get that in Cabal a lot, basically, is, is that um, anyone who's wearing a uniform or um, looking respectable, um, they, they, don't, they seem to get away with a lot. And, then, and Boone seemed to be like a bit of a renegade, I guess, where, you know, you know, I mean, I don't think he changes his clothes at all during the thingy. I think he, you know, he dies and dies. He basically tries to kill himself in his set of clothes. And then yeah. that's really, he's pretty much wearing those clothes to the very end. He doesn't change his clothes. But he must be pretty much quite stinky by the end of the novel. Well, I think he's, he was the only one who can transform and then be in the sunlight. The others were, they couldn't do it. Mm. So again, what you're saying about you know, no, being being who he really was, that beast, and then be go back to look like a normal person that no one could know that he was that. Well, when we covered Dead Zone last month, we talked about destiny, and so do you think that basically everything that happens to Boone is because of destiny? Because you do find out that um, this this the story of Boone was foretold you know, centuries and centuries before that. So everything that happens in this book was meant to happen. So because Boone is the savior, he becomes Cabal. 
and it's up for and you know what we do find out is that cabal is going to be the freer of the underdwellers of the meridian it's going to be the freer of that but in order to free it he has to open them up to the world in order to free it and this is what boone's um main duty is so do you think that so basically since boone's birth do you think this is all predestined then well to me yes and no i mean Definitely, he was not kind of like happy how he was before he turned into Cabal, right? Mm-hmm. And he was he was, he wanted to find that place. He wanted to go to medium. So it's like he uh, probably if he would have I don't know being ended in jail without without being able to leave at all. Probably his destiny would have been not being him. But I don't know. It's a bit. For me, it's a bit hard to talk about because it's a it's a story written by someone, so you can't change the end of the, the story. You know, it has been. But I think I know what you mean, and I think that yes, and I think he was like that was he was deep down what he was looking for, so to end there for good or bad. By yourself, Craig, do you think that he could have changed the destiny? Do you think this is like he was on that course, and that's pretty much it? There's no way to leave that course um i mean it could be destiny led by decker but um i think maybe in some formal way like death would have followed him and it would have been in the form of the cenobites or it could have been someone from midian or something he and the way he was going in his life especially i know um mental health was um not taken seriously back then but if he was on a on a path of like um, suspected bipolar or outbursts and criminal history and things, then at some point he was going to have to face his demons in another way, probably. So pro- probably destiny was was set for him. There was an alternative ending in the movie as well, which um, at, the, at the end part of the prophecy, um, Boone and Laurie now appeared as a, a painting. Uh, breed painting so that would obviously tie in with with on them from the movie side um but yeah i think yeah i i do i like i like the whole idea that there is a destiny and things happen for a reason and i mean i guess um how i kind of look at this is that you know a bit like um in dead zone as well because basically there seems to be a destiny that you can't change sort of things that the characters are kind of stuck in this Forward, this thing that's propelling them forward to the finale that no matter what they try to do it's you know it's gonna give them this finale sort of thing and it seems like you know if you look at if you know if, if Midian does happen and you have this prophecy that's supposed to happen and it's going to happen at some point and then you do have this person that does show up that basically that who is an innocent who gets bitten, who gets turned into the night breed, which um, Boone was an innocent because he wasn't guilty of anything. He didn't kill anybody. He was an innocent. And this is part of the prophecy. So basically, you know, what you have is all these horrible things have, were foretold, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And eventually, if, the, if you know, if, if a prophecy does happen, okay, this is a prophecy sort of thing. And it's told hundreds and hundreds of years that basically someone has to be born to that destiny in order for this to happen. Because when it does happen, it's just like, that means this person has no choice. Because, you know, 
an unclean, you know, a clean person, uh, you know, an innocence that needs to be killed by a night breed. Then they, they, then they become the night breed. And then the, when they become the night breed, they have to bring doom onto the, the meridian of the sanctuary that they're in. So that, and then they're going to break free and a bunch of them are going to be murdered, but a bunch of them will become free and then they'll be looking for a new home and they will rebuild. And this is the prophecy. And the prophecy is built on this one man basically being the one bitten and turning the, the tide to the story. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite thankful. I mean, I, I, I think if it was me that had a destiny, I probably would have screwed it up by now because I'm the kind of person that if you drop something, I'll pick it up and give it to you. But if you ask me to pick it up for you, I probably won't. So <laughs> I'm one of those people sort of thing. But um, so, yeah, so I thought that was quite interesting that basically, and I always kind of find that when you have like prophecies and stuff like this, and then you have, and you know, maybe you're reading a story, but then you have a character that basically has to fulfill that prophecy. And then you're kind of thinking how much of this character has free will about everything that happened in the film. And if you look at, you know, if you look at life anyway, life is a series of events anyway, that leads you to where you are now and it scopes and changes everything that you are. But if you do have a destiny and this is what your end game is, is over here, that means that every, all of these little events have to add up to this here because you you are the chosen person to do this. So therefore, and I thought, you know, when you look beyond that, I mean, the book doesn't go too much into that, but when you do, um, but when you do think outside of the book and start thinking of Boone's destiny, that he has to be, he has to be this person. So that means he has to come into control with Decker. He has to try to, you know, he has to try to commit suicide. He has to meet this other character. So then because he is the prophecy, he has to get the Midian to fulfill this prophecy sort of thing. And it kind of screws your mind a little bit, actually. It's like trying to figure out, you know, John Connor's father in Terminator. (laughs) 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 You know, you guys like, okay, you know, it's like when you look at that sort of thing, it's like, okay, basically, it's like the world has to end. So no matter what you do, the world has to end because this guy in the future, has to come back and impregnate this woman to have this child so to be able to send this guy back so he can be born. <laughs> so it's like... Ah. <laughs> so it does have that kind of... <laughs> um, about Meridian itself and the creatures, I think that... I think the only thing I could say about Cabal is I like the length of it and I like the way that it moved, but I kind of wanted to meet a little bit more... I think some of the creatures are kind of left to the side. You kind of get a little bit of Buffett, um, the little the little deer girl. Well, I mean, I don't know. I I said that they, he doesn't give a lot of descriptions of what these characters look like in the book. And I sit there and say that a lot of the characters from the movie are kind of washing in, but I remember not feeling but But, you know, it would have been nice to have mo- a little bit more about Rachel and Buffett and Buffy May and narcissists and all those characters because you don't get a lot about them a lot you don't get and even the descriptions of them are he doesn't give a lot of descriptions of them sort of things you get a sense of who they are but you don't really get to know a lot about them and i think that he probably could have expanded on them a little bit more because i kind of wanted to know a bit more about them even narcissus you think like why was he there in the first place and what why on earth do you why did he need to rip the skin from his head in the first place? And what <laughs> yeah, that was like, very random. 
Yeah. Why would you? Another thing is I didn't understand is like, how do you become part of Meridian? Because, you know, they said that, you know, so basically is it, this is why I got a bit confused and maybe you guys picked up. He was almost like a gatekeeper really, wasn't he? Yes. Well, if Boone's an innocent and is against Meridian law for an innocence to be turned into Nightbreed, Mm. This is what we're told. So that means that everyone at Meridian has done something bad to become Nightbreed. So, like, so if you do something bad, that means you can be turned into Nightbreed. So is Meridian like a bunch of like thieves? And I mean, I don't, I don't. Because another thing is, you don't know if they're born that way or they're turned in that way. All we know is that you can't turn an innocence into Nightbreed. And then, of course, Boone gets bit and he runs off and get. And of course, he gets shots, and of course, that turned, you know, and his death is, you know, his rebirth to the Nightbreed sort of thing. But but you're never quite sure because you do find out with, you know, when Narcissus rips his face up, he's like, I'm revealing myself to you, so therefore you can take me to Meridian sort of thing. And I mean, he was a bit, I mean, he has some psychological issues anyway. I mean, to be able to tear your face off and wanting to go to Midian. But then he kind of, but Narcissus comes across as um, a, he doesn't come across as an innocence. I don't know what he's done or anything like that, but he's not, um, he's not 100% there as far as, you know, what we would consider um, a state of mental health for a normal person <laughs> sort of thing, um, you know, and, but there is this thing about, you know, when you go to Midian, you can only, you search out Midian if you've done something, but you're not quite sure what you've done. Are you like a pedophile? Are you a murderer? Are you just a person who just like was born under a bad sign? Or, and I thought that, you know, I thought, I guess in one way it's quite good that it's quite open, but another way it's kind of, I kind of wanted to know more. So this, this novel did leave me wanting more about what exactly are the mechanics of Midian and how does this world run and how do you become a nightbreed? Are they born into it? Or are they turned into it? Is it like vampires or werewolves or, you know, where you have to be bitten or scratched or is it part of your family legacy or, you know. And I, I mean, I understand that there are myths and legends around places and there are myths and legends around places today sort of thing. You know, and I know that people, you know, whether if you're looking at religion with heaven, you know, you know, whether you're religious or not, there is a mythology around heaven that the way to get to heaven is to be doing this, and this gets you this place after death sort of thing. You know, and, and there are rules and regulations with vampirisms and werewolves and demons and fairies and so on and so forth. And I thought that Clive Barker kind of skitted around the issue a little bit about the Nightbreed and Midian. I, think I wanted more about that, but... Outside of that, I think it's quite a, a worthwhile book, and I would highly recommend it. What about yourself, Leandro? Would you recommend Cabal? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, uh, I don't know, it's like um, from other um, terror stories that I've read, it's totally different. I, I like the, also the the way that it's like, um, like a crime uh, story along, right? Uh, and I've... I really, yeah, I would will, I will recommend it. And I like it because also, as Craig said, it's not a really long, long book, so it's easy to read, and yeah, I would. What about yourself, Craig? Would you recommend Nightbreed? I mean, Cabal. <laughs> <laughs> Cabal, I would say, if you, if it's an introduction to, to horror novels, 
with like a psychological thriller aspect, um, then it's, it's, I definitely recommend it. And, um, you know, if, if you're into like primal um, cult horror tribes and, and people and prophecies and things like that, then it's right up your street. And um, yeah, um, you'll get a shock if you order ghost story. <laughs> it's a big one. <laughs> if you compare the two. <laughs> We're gonna try something out, something slightly different here. Um, so, of a rating of five killer Decker blades, how many killer Decker blades would you give Cabal? Starting with you, Craig. Oh, yeah, I'll give it five Decker blades out of five for um, Cabal. Yeah. And what about yourself, Leandro? Yeah, five. Yeah. I think I'll you. Give it five. I think I'll give it five as well, actually. I actually really enjoyed this. This is actually the third time I've actually read this. I read it when it first came out. Um, oh, wow. And I read it, um, yeah, and I read it afterwards, after, um, but that's, a, that's a story for another time. But this, yeah, this is the third time. And, and what, what was your, like, because um, I used to have a, I have a teacher once at university that said that you really understand the writer's view, not the first time you read the book, because the first time you don't know what was going to happen in the story, so you're more concentrating was to know what was going to happen to the cards. So then the second time you read it, you know the story, so then you start to see things before you couldn't realize because you were just following the story how it, to see what was going to happen. And they said the more that you read it, the more that you realize how the writer is writing the things to let you... You know what I mean? Let you know what, what he wants you to know. So what what was your, like, kind of personal well, read um, like this for the third time or for... The first time I read this, um, it was after I was... Um, I read all the Books of Blood, um, which are fantastic. I highly recommend Clyde Barker's The Books of Blood, volumes one through four. Excellent. Best best short story going. I mean, it takes Stephen King and makes Stephen King look like a pussy. Um, books of Bloods, and I highly recommend those. Then I read Cabal, so I read it the first time. And then after that, I started dating Clyde Barker for a little while, so I read it the second time when I was with him, sort of thing, because you know, I was looking at things like that. And then this is the third time. So the first time, I loved it, because I thought that I loved Books of Blood, and because this was a novel, that sort of thing. And it kind of... it. In this, you know, Hellraiser just came out, sort of thing, and I kind of was in the Clyde Barker before Hellraiser, so I never read Hellbound Heart or any of those things or anything to deal with Hellraiser. So that was just a movie for me. But for me, this felt the same kind of lines as Books of Blood. Then I kind of went into deeper things like Damnation Game and Weed World and The Great and Secret Show and so on and so forth after that, and Cold Yard. Cold Heart Canyon, I think it's the last one I read from him. I kind of dropped off from him for a little while now. And I thought Cabal was fantastic. Reading it this time around, um, 
I felt it moved very, very well for me. And I felt it, it moved well. And did I learn anything new? No. To me, it's just like a, like a, it's like a, a elongated short story is what it felt like to me. And it's like, everything's there, but I have sat there and say that what, what I found fulfilling the first time around this time, I kind of wanted to know more. And I'm not, I, I wanted to know more, like I said before about medium and things like that. So, and um, emotionally, um, this this it's i find the novel all inspiring i find it very you know it fills me with all you know about the midian and everything that's going on around it but it, emotionally um it, it doesn't affect me emotionally you know one of my books that i read that i read like six or seven times is a prayer for own Mimi by john irving and every time i read that i cry by the end of it and that's the only novel i know that makes me actually feel emotionally vulnerable and um, so, yeah, so Cobalt doesn't do that to me, but I do think that it's one that it's interesting to look at it from different decades of you know, your life sort of thing. And, you know, not if, if I had a chance to read it again or something like that, I probably would. I would have a problem with it. Nightbreed, which is a 1990 American dark fantasy horror film written and directed by Clyde Barker, based on his 1988 novella Cabal. It stars Craig Schaefer and Bobby, David Cronenberg, Charles Haid, Hugh Croshey, and Doug Bradley. The um, Doug Bradley is Pinhead from Hellraiser, just so you know who he is. The film follows an unstable mental patient named Aaron Boone, who is falsely led to believe by his doctor that he is a serial killer. Tracked down by the police, his doctor and his girlfriend, Lori, Boone eventually finds refuge in an abandoned cemetery called Midian among a tribe of monsters and outcasts known as the Nightbreed who hide from humanity. At the time of its release, the film was a commercial and critical failure. In several interviews, Barker protested that the film company tries to sell it as a standard slasher film and that the powers that be had no real working knowledge of Nightbreed's story. Since its initial theatrical release, Nightbreed had become a cult film. Over time, Barker expressed disappointment with the final cut, approved by the studio and always longed for the recovery of the reels, so the film might be re-edited. In 2014, the original film elements for the cut material were re-obtained and re-edited into a director's cut released through Screen Factory, which um, is available today. So we're going to do is cut to the trailer of Nightbreed, and we'll be right back. Something is reading there. From Clive Barker. Creator of the award-winning box office hit, Hellraiser, comes the spectacular adult fantasy adventure, Nightbreed. From the beginning, there have been monsters, a race of exotic creatures and extraordinary beings, hidden from the sight of mankind for centuries. These are the Nightbreed. Their refuge is a place called Midian, where only monsters are welcome. But then... Isn't there something monstrous in all of us? Are you prepared to be judged by the gods? Starring Craig Sheffer from Some Kind of Wonderful, Anne Bobby from Born on the Fourth of July, and David Cronenberg, director of The Fly, in his first major acting role. 
featuring superb special effects from the people who brought you the creatures in Hellraiser and Lair of the White Worm. Nightbreed delivers throat-gripping excitement, an adult fantasy that doesn't kid around. Believe me? I believe you. Come, meet the dead of night. Hello, welcome back to the Show License Podcast, and we're discussing Nightbreed from 1990. And Leandro, what are your thoughts of Nightbreed? Um, well, I really enjoyed the movie. <laughs> the visual effects, you know, um, were really interesting. Um, there was one part that... Um, Bonus turn, turn around and look the place the whole place set it on fire and you realize that it's like a picture that they, you know in the old the, the old days they used to not have 3D so they have to put one picture and then on behind another one behind another one then you have to record it like that so that was really interesting that they merged that with other effects that were like you know fire and explosion that were really really cool um, I really as Craig said, yeah, these um, the doctor when he was putting that mask remind me Batman. Um, yeah, probably. I really enjoy uh, some visual effects were really like clever. I think, um, and the one they were showing different, you know, characters. Um, I enjoyed, you know, like for example, you know, when, well, there was one that the little girl, for example, she was under the sun and she was changing all the shape and then when they bring it inside, it came back to how she was. So I think that w- that was really clever how they made it. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed the movie. I, w- I would recommend it. And I know that probably the writer was complaining about that there was a failure, but now you have to pay to watch uh, the movie over YouTube or wherever, wherever, any platform you were trying to find it. You have to pay, so they're making money now. <laughs> Not back then. <laughs> right, so, Craig, what are your thoughts on my brief? Well, they're probably going to release a director's cut soon, hopefully, and then they'll probably charge two pounds more on Amazon Prime. <laughs> I, actually, yeah. I, actually, I actually have a director's cut, so if you guys are interested, I can email that to you if you want. Yeah, I definitely want to see that. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed the movie, and... Um, I love I love the idea of like monsters in, in folklore monsters who are brought to the edge and they're living together and surviving and um I love the idea of Midian itself um cuz in my spare time when I'm photograph photographing I'll often um go to the southwest of Cornwall and go to the ancient um monument and burial sites um, and I've catalogued most of um, uh, Cornwall's um, ancient stones and things. And there's one that in particular called Manatol. And the, the legend is that um, back in um, the early centuries, you could, it's basically a circular hole. It looks like a polo. And they would pass, um, people would walk through the hole to become healed. And and I was so intrigued, and I actually I got right through the hole myself. <laughs> I've never been felt the same, felt the same since. But you know, it's just a it's a great idea, really good a concept and idea. Because um, even some of the standing stone circles that I visited, 
um, there's one called the Nine Maidens, and it's supposed to be like these, um, you know, f- uh, maidens that were um, fossilized and turned into stones, you know, down to folklore and things like that. And, you know, you just don't know if these places, you know, it, it, it gets you thinking and you think like, God, it, did this really happen, you know? And, you know, could there be places like Midian that you just walk into and you you go beyond the void of reality? You know, you just don't know. It's kind of cool. Um, I still think, though, what I said earlier, I think as an animation or um, I, the, the, con- the concept of Midian itself would have been better as an animation. For the budget that they had at the time and for what they did, I think that they did, they pulled it off quite well. Um, I mean, because you had the slasher, um, as for the psychological side of stuff with the slasher with um, Decker, you had um, the the monsters against monsters almost, you know, and then you've got the Beauty and the Beast aspect of the romance. Um, I would have liked, I mean, it was a bit, it reminded me of Labyrinth. There was this scene that I remember quite clearly where there was a wolf-like creature that... Um, and there was another night breed and she was called Rachel, I think. And she was made of smoke and she just appeared really well. I mean, it was just amazing. And then the, the wolf creature became a little girl, I think, um, as she transcended into the, into the safe, safe zone of, of the, the, uh, the, the, the city. And it was things like that that made me think, wow, they, they actually really did pull off another dimensional world really well. Like, um even in labyrinth um with david bowie you know when when the the girls you know searching through um the um the, uh, i can't remember the name of it but it's like a maze and she's walking along and then there's just like a brick wall but the brick wall isn't just a brick wall it's a hologram into another section of the labyrinth and then there's talking worms talking to her out of bricks and things and and then you and then you, you realize you're like you know um, are we now in a psychosis of the of the of the main character at the moment? And and then it, it and then you start to question like you know what's reality? You know, um, but um, some beautiful creature designs. I mean, uh, Peliquin, I love that character so much. Even the voice and uh, he, he was he was awesome, man. I just I would love to see like an origin story of Peliquin and. And or or a sequel or something, and see what they're getting up to, sort of thing. And um, the 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 porcupine girl, she was cool. Um, I would have loved though to her to have at that scene when she came out and she was shooting the policeman with the little darts. I would have really liked her to have been like a peacock sort of thing, and then just point like poison darted them it reminded me of critters actually when the critters start poison darting people in the necks because it's kind of freaky because you're thinking that is venom and that you know there's no way you're going to get out of that one really because you're going to go unconscious and that that kind of put me on edge a little bit there it was a bit um kind of made me feel a bit uneasy which is a good reaction um i I watched it several times because i was it was my first time watching it but i noticed in the opening scenes as well it was a, br- oh, I've got a, yeah, the opening scene. As, as soon as I heard the opening scene, I knew it was Danny Elfman. I mm. mean, what a beautiful soundtrack. I mean, 
and then he did the shots of the creatures that you were going to see as the title came across the screen. That was really, really well done because it drew you in. You thought, wow, this is going to be like a roller coaster of a movie, you know, when you, when that scene came up. Um, so yeah, that's, um, a few of my favorite bits. For me, Nightbreed, I went to see it when it first came out. Um, enjoyed it. I enjoyed it this time around. I have to sit there and say, though, it did have like a TV feel about it, the way that it's filmed. Because everything felt like, and I guess my only um, complaint about this is that it felt like, it felt like everything was done on a studio backlot. You know what I mean? There's been like what you were saying, like, you know, like the Wizard of Oz when she's skipping on the elevator. Run, it's like, stop, you're going to bump into this back. You're going to bump into the backdrop sort of thing. And then I kind of have that backdrop feel to it. And um, and I think that if Clyde Barker maybe had, because the only film he made before this was Hellraiser. And I think Hellraiser works because it's quite dark and gritty. It's quite a dark and gritty film. And this one's kind of bright and like you know, kind of, everything's kind of like in the daytime anyway. And I found that watching it this time around and looking at it more with a critical eye sort of thing, I thought that if maybe if he did it a bit darker, you know, so therefore it's like the makeup, did, the makeup of the creatures didn't look so much like makeup sort of thing. And, you know, you can hide things in shadows and stuff like this. And you can hide, because Midian did look like it was like in, in someone's soundstage. A lot of it did sort of thing. And it's like, you know, it's like watching a, it's like watching Buffy, you know, you're watching Buffy and she's kicking ass in a cemetery and you know that's done in the parking lot of the Buffy studios. Do you know what I mean? Because you know that, because you, you just knew that those tombstones were not permanent features, you know, and that, you know, and I, and I think that when he did location shots and stuff like that, that was fantastic. But then, then when he went back into the soundstage, it had that soundstage feel to it. And unfortunately, the brightness of the way it was filmed did make made it kind of look like a TV film, TV production. You know, there's the t- the way the TV films things, and there's what yeah. the film. Yeah, I mean, but but over, and I felt that, and then, and I love all the way up until the battle at Midian. But once we get to the battle at Midian, then we kind of then the film kind of gets messy. You don't know what the hell's going on, sort of thing, because you got kind of like you know, you know, you need the fight, you need the fight, and you have these creatures that are behind like a you know, when they come out sort of thing. And, and you know, I guess that, and then we kind of get Clyde Barker's, you know, puzzle box, blue screen, you know, you know, when you, when the puzzle box closes and you have those like, those electrical blue, blue um, shock, you know, electric things going through. We kind of get that. And this is what I was like, oh, there's Hellraiser. It's Clyde Barker's Hellraiser electric <laughs> sort of thing. But I think that, but I think, I mean, you know, for the amount of, it'd be interesting to know that if they did remake this and, you know, if there, if there is going to be, if the TV product production comes out of it and stuff like this, or I wonder what this would have been like if it was someone who wasn't so close to it. You know, Clyde Barker wrote it and then he wrote the book and then he wrote and directed this. And I'm wondering that if it was, if you look at like Candyman, which is also based on a Clyde Barker story called The Forbidden. And you look at the way that's done by the way George Rose was able to put that into um, and make that into a film. And that has like a really grittiness to it. Because I think I think what I think the only thing that this film lacks, I think it would have been better if it was gritty. Because even like the, when when Decker comes in and kills the family, it kind of like, you know, 
outside of her being overweight and the family the family just kind of looked like a tv family do you know what I mean? it was like it's like you just walked into the set of laundry years this is a wonder years family and it's like it's going to be killing them it's like it reminded me of um halloween six where Michael, the, the old lady's on the telephone, I think, and then Mike Miles just turns up and then wipes out the family, and, and you know, it just reminded me of that. And this, and this one looked like a TV family, you know, like a, you know, you know, the next door neighbors to Roseanne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, but I mean, but you know, you know, but when I look at the you know the script and stuff like this, I think I mean it's an enjoyable film. I did enjoy it. But I have to say, looking at this time around, I thought, I thought to myself, like, God, this looks very TV. It feels like a TV movie. It feels like, not even like a made for Netflix. It feels like a made for, like, you know, you know, like, you know, the, the kind of Channel 5 shows here in the UK, you know, it's like, oh, I need to go to bed, but I'll just put out, you know, and then you find yourself watching this really cheesy Channel 5 movie, and you can't, and then you find yourself at 2.30 watching, like, somebody from Charlie's Angels or some old TV show, like, being chased around by a serial killer and you're like, why am I watching this? But you can't stop. It kind of had that kind of feel to it. There were, there were a few things that called my attention. One is like when, um, Bond was on, 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 in prison. Right. And then the sheriff, I think went to hit him. Right. Mm -hmm. After hit him, the police officer, you know, light the cigarette for him. And I don't, I don't know, Tommy, well, you know, you were talking about this, this story is a bit like really like sexual. It's like, because, okay, you have pleasure punching someone, now you have a cigarette, right? And then that really caught my attention. I don't know. Then, then when they were in, in the prison, then when they were about to go to, um, exp, you know, put all um, TNT and all the place and, and kill all of them, there was a, a sign where all the guns say we we fight for freedom or something like that in yellow, and I thought it was really strange that that is in a in a jail. I think so you um, fight from freedom, but you are in a jail, you know. So for me, it was that that was really like clever to put that sign there. Yeah, and and I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean. Maybe that's a play guess, on. Um, this might be a British version, a British person's version of North America, but I thought it was really weird that when they went to the to get the guns and everything, the fleet, you know, the the townspeople, and they had like AK forty sevens and all this stuff. Like, you don't <laughs> have that. <laughs> it's like not. You don't have like AK forty sevens and bomb <laughs> bomb throwers. It's like, and it was really funny because they were they were like a, the the police station of a really small town in the middle of nowhere, and they have an arsenal of things to go yeah. to kill the world. <laughs> yeah. And I know that we have like you know I know that in America we do have gun freedom and stuff like that, but you know all that all those guns they're not available to buy at Walmart. You know they're just not. You know like, you might get some you get. Rifles and maybe some pistols and maybe some shotguns, but yeah, you're not going to come up with like wars of mass destruction out <laughs> of the local places. <laughs> going back to what Leandro said about the um, the film cells on on top of each other for the sequences, it was um, it was Star Wars art concept artist Ralph McQuarrie who painted the Necropolis sequences and that um, at Pinewood Studios. And it was and it was Clive's Clive's dream to be the the Star Wars of TV monsters, I think, at the time. Oh wow! Um, and he only had a couple of chapters to work off of from the book, um, so they did pretty well, I think, from 
yeah, from pretty well. I think it to me. I think it's the film stock. I think we should use the darker film stock. Sort of mm-hmm. so, nothing so bright. But I think it's also because I think he wanted to. But I think this has to do with um, how, um, how Razor he made he raised the money for that and stuff like this on his own. And, and what do you think? And he made what, that what, 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 what do you think about um, when Pelequin was going to bite Boone? He uh, he was already a, a grotesque monster, like a demon with the dreads and that. But then he they tried to make him even more horrific sort of thing. And he was shaking and then the teeth came out. And I was thinking, it was really unusual. I've never seen a monster become another monster. It's something to become more scary than what they already are. It was quite interesting. Well, see, this see. Is another thing that we don't know either. It's like, because we get like um, Buffett, Basically, she she can turn to like a little girl, and then we had, and then we had like, then we had the the gay guy with the the dog, and he looked normal. Yeah. I don't know what his Meridian story was, sort of thing. But it it asks it makes you ask a lot more questions. And then, then they have like all these other weird looking people, sort of thing. So do they just stay looking weird? Can they transform? Because they're all about everyone else. You know, your main characters can transform, but everyone in the background can't. <laughs> There was this weird Tim Burton moment where one guy had a protruding stomach and then suddenly sandworms came out and round his neck. And that was a bit of a Tim Burton thing going on there. Like even the music, I thought, am I watching Beetlejuice for a second? (laughs) It was a bit strange. Well, another thing I found kind of weird about that guy, I mean, I mean, I mean, I do like this film, but I mean, but if you, you know, it's fun to, te- it's going to tear apart, but he's like, you know, he's got these things that come out of his stomach and they kind of curl around his neck sort of thing. And he's like, and then, I, and then someone's got a gun pointing at him and he's like, you know, and I thought to myself, I was like, by the time they come out of his neck and by the time they go into that guy's eye, this guy could have shot him like eight or nine times. Yes. <laughs> you know, I am a, ma- you know, I got my, it's like, something like I got my own, you know, weapon of mass destruction and these things slowly. It's been like watching a, a James Bond villain. It's like, I'm going to kill a hundred million people. And this is why and so, like, 15 minutes of this is like, never mind, just shoot him in the ass. <laughs> like, why do you have to listen to this? sort of thing but yeah it was kind of I mean there's and I do like that they tried they did expand on the night breed in this that we don't we do, we do get a bit more expansion than we do in the novel of some of the creatures here it does feel a bit rushed though to, it's like it's like kind of like you've seen the beginning it's like rush 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 now we're in Midian so now the rest you know now we're in Midian but I didn't like I didn't like the the only thing I probably compared to the novel that I wish they kept in is I kind of wish that basically what would have happened is is that Lori and um, her new friend go to Midian. Um, she hangs around by the car. She walks through Midian. She saves Buffett. She goes back. She's devastated about the loss of Boone. Decides she's never going to back. And her friend's like going out. You know, her friend meets, goes out on a date, and she goes, "Come on, mm-hmm. the next day, come on, we go on a date." And then they get to that the poor side of town, and they go in the restaurant, and that whole scene there. And I kind of wish because I kind of like the I like the friend a lot, and I thought so she's kind of dispensing it quickly out of that, and and it would have been nice for to have Lori 
Because basically, Laurie gives in the novel, which I think makes the novel work a little bit better than the film, is that Laurie gives up on Boone. It's like, okay, I'm going back to my life now. And then because Decker kills her friend and then Decker tries to kill her, that forces her back to going back for Boone sort of thing. That realizes, mm-hmm. and, um, and I think that, we, you know, I think in the movie, we kind of needed that. This is kind of like, so Lori mm-hmm. never gets up on Boone at all. Her main focus in the movie is just boom, 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 boom sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, did you see the director's cut or did you see the regular cut of this? The regular. The the director's cut, um, which I will forward to you. um, The director's cut basically has where the Nightbreed are in a barn. Boone is basically with Lori. We do get the the book ending where she, she tries to kill herself. Boone bites her, brings her back to life. And then they're, they got the, they got the, the Hollywood sun settling behind them and they're going to go find new homes for the Meridian. But we also get this odd little story sort of thing with the sheriff. Now, the sheriff, I think, in the movie is worse than the sheriff that's in the book. This one's kind of like a little um, asshole sort of thing, a very um, racist kind of person. And I guess, you know, that works quite well for the film. And then we get the priest sort of got character who instead of wearing women's underwear he's now gay <laughs> you know he's a gay priest big which is not really a big deal because that's uh, they're pretty much everywhere <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's like, when do you say priest that's not gay but uh, anyway it's kind of an openly gay priest gay, gay priest and um basically what happens is, is that you know the book basically has the gay the the, the women wearing priests basically with no arms and legs in a hospital bed and and the sheriff is pretty much seeing him because he thinks that they can find the night breed and kind of the book is kind of open-ended so they he could write a sequel to it this one um he's turned into a kind of a creature with a big head and he kills the sheriff and then basically he's going after the night breed this this priest character is with you know kind of with a Kind of like Liberace going after, you know, like trying to be evil sort of thing. So, so it's kind of a weird thingy. But another thing that you also get is that at the end of the title cards, what you do is you get Decker, who isn't dead, which is kind of weird as well, because Decker at the end of the day is mortal, and he wasn't bitten by anyone or anything like that. So you kind of get that. So that's what you have with the director's cut. Um, though it does stick to the book mostly, there are some changes in the book that I think that the movie would have benefited a little bit for character development for, for the part of Lori. And I think it's with her friend. It would have been nice if that took over, took over for like two or three days sort of thing that happens in the book, because that way when her friend dies, you feel more of a loss. Now she just kind of feels like, you know, victim number four in a Friday the 13th film, you know, without her tits out. But um, what do you think works in the film? The doctor and patient aspect is really intriguing um, from a psychological point of view, um, where almost it's, it's being led by the psych the, the psycho psychologists. You know, it's 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 quite uh, interesting. You know, destiny's being led by 
by this individual. And I'm thinking in terms of the prophecy, how does Decker fit into that? And is he, you know, is he more than, more than mortal, you know, mm. existentially? But um, I would have liked to have seen more of Baf- Baphomet. I would have liked to have seen him interact and, it was very cool design, really cool. It was like an artwork that you'd find in the gallery, but I would have liked, you know, like in Ghoulies 2, where they've done the spell, there's a big Ghoulie at the end, it's yeah. chomping, it's stomping around, that would have been good. And then all Baphomet needed to do was breathe fire on all, all the bastards and, and wipe everyone out and save Meridian. And obviously the prophecy didn't didn't go that way. Um but uh, I have to say that that character design for him kind of looked like Alien. Yeah. Re, um, or Species. I remember that, that famous artist um, who does right the is it Geiger. Yeah. 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 So it kind of had that kind of a feel to it, I thought to myself. Yeah. And I kind of, I kind of wish that they, he, it was a bit more mobile. Because it does, it felt like a statue. And then when you finally do get to see the character speak, it does look like someone's put their face inside the statue. Because <laughs> he doesn't say anything. He's kind of like, just, he, just, he just stands there and he doesn't move at all. Mm-hmm. And it kind of like you get these, you know, the lights shining and stuff like this. And apparently he, you know, he speaks to Boone and casts them out of Meridian, but you don't hear him cast anything else. So you don't actually see the character move at all. And then when you do see a move, it's kind of like, oh, okay. And it just felt like, oh, he's, he's opened his eyes and now he's speaking sort of thing. So it would be quite good if he, the character moved around a little bit and created a little bit more. I love the design. Like as you said, the design was fantastic and it opened the a lot. The makeup was excellent. But it would be nice if, it, if he could move around because it's like, what, is he just stationary? Is it his, is his whole... Is his whole life basically just standing in one position for centuries and centuries? And what kind of life is that? It's kind of like being, it's like, I'm going to have a really long life. Well, okay, I'm going to have a really long life, but I'm going to be bedridden for it. It's like, well, that's not, <laughs> it's like, I want, I want yeah. a quality of life, not quantity. Sort of thing. But I mean, I think overall, I think, I think it's a very, very good film. I, I'm not, not going to take, take anything away from it. I think it's very, very faithful to the novel where it does diverge i think that's where the movie kind of does suffer a little bit i think that when it does diverge a little bit away from the novel then it then it kind of and then when it tries to bring itself back to the novel then it tends to get a bit messy and then and then the action sequences yeah it was i i just think that i think if it had a a director who's a bit more who had a little bit more stuff behind him and to, to uh, be able to focus on how to do action sequences, I think it probably would have been a bit easier. It got a bit messy. I got to a point where I was like, what, who's fighting who? It's been like, you know, when, like the Lord of the Rings films. Like I love the first one, the second one. And then because there was a wait between the second and the third one that when the third one came out, I'm watching it like going, what the hell's going on here? It's like, all this is people fighting. I, I, I lost, I couldn't figure out who's <laughs> fighting who. And it kind of felt a bit like that because you got a lot of the, and I think it's because you got a lot of the creatures who are being killed off left, right, and center. And because you never saw these creatures before, it's kind of hard to, mm. uh, 
I think mm-hmm. that in the film, uh, probably what you would need is a midi in town meeting. And then they had like all the creatures there and having Nova. And then they're like, they, they like, scan across the cross that way you know who all of them are, sort of thing. So that way, then when they. How would you. <laughs> well, is this means that. Wing throw it or shoot. The next, so when they're getting shot, you'd be like. So it's like, when because <laughs> most of them got shot in the back, didn't they? So it's like, person with yeah. shots. There's another person with a weird head shot, sort of thing. So, but if they had like. If you could like differentiate them, so when they got shot, you maybe you, you know, it just felt like it's like watching a war movie with like a cast of a thousand sort of thing. And they're like, you know, it's like you got you, you kind of got your American GIs and they're killing all, you know, they're in Vietnam killing all the Viet Cons or whatever like that. And the thing is, you can't differentiate any of the Viet Cons because it's like you never see any of them individually. It's like there's just a group of people sort of thing. So yeah, that's, well, I, think that, uh, I think I do think the action sequences probably could have been a bit more film better to give it a little bit more strength and power and feel more of a loss for the Midian. What I like a lot is like, um, as a Craig said, is like you know, like the the doctor when he was killing someone, right? Then you don't see any monster; it's just a man back in the haze, but that. Um, builds on you like uh, further the expectation to know who is behind that that mask, who is that this person, mm-hmm. and all the psychological thing behind. I remember there is a movie called So. I don't know if you have seen them, and it's terror in a point, but it's not terror. It's like it's just suspense, but it like, and I really like it because you know when you grow up, maybe when you were a kid, you know, you see all oh, monsters, and you uh, you maybe you were getting scared. Then you get older and you know that that's not real, right? So you see in a different way. And then these things of suspense of knowing who is probably, who could be the bad person, but what you don't know how it's going to do, but you know it's going to do is really cool. And I, what I like to, when I watch movies that are really old, what I try to enjoy is, you know, how they made the visual effects at that time. Because, for example, these days with the computer, it's really easy to, I don't know, make fire, make a big explosion. But yeah. at that time, you know, um, it wasn't as easy as, as these days. So I really appreciate, you know, the way they did it. I mean, I know what they were not explaining. There were a lot of, like, different creatures that were appearing more and more and more. And you don't know where they're coming from. But at the same time, you know, they were, you know, in the part of the movie, they were saying that they wanted to go somewhere, and they were saying, no, that's like kind of the forbidden part. You cannot go there, because it's like kind of more like deep on the um, soil, on the ground. So I imagine that that's what they were trying to, more or less, like, to explain in one way. But it, I know it's like when, they, when you see them, everything is getting destroyed. You can um kind of like feel anything because you haven't seen them before it's just people running I think, um, I think what you kind of needed maybe is like when Laurie's going through Midian you know when she wakes up yeah. you kind of needed you kind of need that tour and they do that like in yeah. you know where Kate Winslet's being talked around she's taking taking around the ship and they're like this is where this happened and this is where this happened and you kind of go on a tour yeah and Kind of see the thing. I think that's probably what you could have put a little bit. I mean, you probably added two or three minutes to the film, which probably wouldn't have been a big deal. Where Lori, yeah. Rachel's taking Lori around Midi, and you get to see the different creatures and who this and then and behind this wall, these are the unspeakable sort of thing. We have to <laughs> or whatever because when they do go, oh, we need to release them. It's like where the hell they come from, and then you think to yourself, like, 
where the hell are you going to... Now that they're out... Because as well. Yeah, now that they're out, you know, and they kill... I mean, I don't think any of them get killed, do they? I think they, they pretty much kill kill all the the rednecks. <laughs> it's not they're all rednecks. It's funny. The rednecks and the cops. But then it's like, where do they go afterwards? <laughs> it's like, you can't put them back out. Like, they're just wandering the earth. Well, uh, to me, there was like... To me, I got it like those were like the monster for the monsters. You know, you know what I mean. Yeah. Those were the beasts for them. You know, they, they couldn't control them unless they will release them. And even when Bond release them, he jump out so that he don't they don't kill him. Yeah, but now they're released, and so now they're just walking, they're just roaming the earth. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like the it's a bit like the Muppets, and then um, in, in this in the Muppets and then they released the Fraggles in Fraggle Rock which was like a subterranean world that no one's supposed to know about with these kooky people you know um, and I think I think now when I think about it there is a Doctor Who episode called Asylum of the Daleks where the Daleks have got a subterranean cavern of Daleks that were too bad to be released to, to be around other Daleks because they're too crazy, you know. Well, Superman so had that quite... as well, didn't they? Isn't that like, um, like in the beginning of the, first, the the original Superman film, you got the people that were trapped in the glass. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. They were too bad. Yeah, yeah. They brought them back for the sequel, of course. But, <laughs> 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 but, um, but yeah, it's, I just got, I, I did wonder, like, what happened? Because the thing is, like, I think the last thing we do is that they, they blow up that truck sort of thing, you know, which, you know, had that, had that redneck girl in it, that, you know, that white trash girl and the redneck guy, you know, so that, you know, the, the cops going there and it blows the truck up with those, those two in it. And then, the, then the rednecks go running off into the sunset sort of thing. And then they think, what happened to these berserkers? Where, where are they going? <laughs> Cause they're, they're nowhere to be found. Are they just, Canada as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> They're at the Greenwich Meridian. Yeah, precisely. They're probably like um <laughs> Yeah. They're not gonna do too much, you know, if you're looking for like human rights, you know, issues and for the night breeds the night breed can live amongst man. I mean these people are, these berserkers are not gonna help your cause much, are they? It'd be like, <laughs> it's like Yeah. I love the style of special effects though. I mean I'm I, I will obviously admit to everyone <laughs> I am a love a lover of really bad rubber eighties monsters movies, and nothing can get away from like a lot of special effects. The hours they must have gone through to make those beautiful designs, and I mean Marvel aside, I mean I do like an, a modern movie with with good CGI, but you can't take it away from you know with especially the wolf creature. She looked beautiful, man. I mean it's it's just it's stunning artworks, you know that that you just you just don't get that anymore because people are just on the computer and they're just clicking and stuff. And, you know, people sculpted things. You've got sculptors, you've got claymation, all these people involved. And, and um, I take my hat off to them, man. They did a really yeah. great pocket the only The only one I didn't like, the only uh, makeup effect I didn't like was um, Narcissus. Was it Narcissus? Uh, with the... He's the guy who tore his face off. Yeah, he, he yeah. Like, um, I just yeah, want to yeah. give him a towel. Dry his face. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because when he changed over, it kind of just looked like he was wearing a a skull cap sort of thing. You like know a what I mean? Cap. Yeah. And I, I yeah. Because it, it, it didn't. It, it just looked like a really. It didn't look. I think all the other 
makeup effects are really, really good. It's just a him. And I think it has that has a lot to do with him. he's out in the daylight a lot sort of thing. And so I think that, and I know that he tore his face off and stuff like this. But another thing is that when he tore his face off, he was tearing it off like this down the front as well. And that wasn't shown in the makeup design and stuff like this. And I thought, I, I thought he was, out of, but he's the only person I can actually pick apart the makeup design. Though I say sometimes Boone's face kind of looked made him look a bit um, Down syndrome a little bit when he was changing. I don't mean to be horrible to people about that, but he kind of his face kind of went lopsided sometimes. <laughs> then then other times it just have, then he would have like the um, designs on his face, and then mm. sometimes so there's times like when it, sometimes it's, that that wasn't very consistent with him. But everyone else, I can. I, I love I love the the smoke that came out of people's mouths if they were touched by the night breed or if they'd been possessed. Yeah, that was really clever. Yeah, it's like the soul. Right. 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 And I like Rachel as well. Yeah. For some reason, when she goes and smoke, and then she then um, basically then she becomes a human person. Of course, she's not wearing any clothes. She has glistening breasts, which I thought was quite interesting. She gets all moist. <laughs> it's a shame the female protagonists in the eighties they were always like, like forgotten about, but they were really really good, man. I mean, look at Laurie Strode in Halloween, man. She's like she's awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I feel sorry for women in the eighties in mo- mo- especially horror movies. Because they just weren't taken very seriously. No, uh, I think I think um, there's a rebalance to that now, isn't there? Um, Unconscious bias and all that, but because I mean, if you look at the slasher films of the '70s and '80s, it's like the women running around. But if you look at the slasher films today, whether it's Ready or Not or Happy Death Day or something like this, now the women, you know, are scream. Now the women like kick ass. It's like you know they're, they're not running away from anyone they're like hey, bring it on i'm coming for you sort of thing it's quite kill interesting bill. <laughs> watch <Yeah>. kill bill <laughs> you'll see <laughs> yeah so so which i have to say at some point we will cover those the the, the modernization of slasher films sort of thing there's some stuff i really want to cover at some point so For Nightbreed, on a scale of five, and um, how many beasts would you give this on a scale of five, starting with you, Craig? Well, Rotten Tomatoes gave this a 5.4 out of 10, but I'm going to give this a four out of five. Eloquence. Um, yeah, four and a half or a five. Yeah, it was, I, I really enjoyed it. So. I'm going to give it three and a half. I do like the film, but I have to sit there and say that there are parts of the narrative that I wish could have been sharpened up a little bit more. I think if it had a great director, I think it'd be a great film. I love the creature effects. I love um, I love the beginning of it, but it gets really messy in the in, in the middle towards the end, sort of thing. And uh, and I just think that it, if it had a darker design to it, I could think if it was a darker looking film, I think it would have held it to me. It's just kind of. It's kind of too bright. It felt. It felt like Smallville, night night breed done by Smallville or something like that. It was just a bit too bright for me. So, but I decided that. But 
yeah, I'd be, I would, I actually would actually look, there's a lot of films I wouldn't look forward to a remake, but I would actually look for a remake, be interested in a remake of this or a reboot or not, not because of practical effects, but just to see what they could do with the story or, or the TV series that they have, that they have in fact, it'd be interesting to see how, what a TV version of this would look like, or especially like if it's done, you know, done by Netflix or something like that. Something like the vein of the Witcher or something like that. This is the end of the Literary License Podcast. Um, of course, next week we'll be covering Bewitched and we'll be covering eight episodes in season two, which were firmly in um, the Tabitha baby years. And our two for one, the 80s, will be covering, covering Killer Party from 1988, no, 1986, and Night of the Demons from 1988. And of course, we'll be co- continuing with Dark Shadows. We'll be covering the episodes from January 1969 through to March 1969, which will be a total of 45 episodes. And ne- our next books of screens will be Peter Strub's Ghost Story, which is a long Fantastic novel I'm enjoying at the moment. I'm now past the 42% mark. And the film from 1981, Ghost Story. So I want to say goodnight to Craig. Good night, Craig. Good night from East Finchley, everybody. Good night, Leandro. Good night. And we'll see you next month for Ghost Story by Peter Strub. And, or next In the hereafter I've never seen one like you uh, You're a knife Sharp and deadly And it's me That you cut into But I don't mind In fact I like it Though I'm terrified I'm turned on, but scared of you. She's a monster.
Oh my. 